because I get to see a lot of the relics from that uh, civilization uh, in all the places that I visit. So, yeah, I think my favorite area of study in history would be South Indian history. So I have a few questions for you. Sure, I hope I can answer them. Yeah, I've been to Hampi, Hampi and mm-hmm. over there, there are lots of ancient temples. Right. Can you tell me the story of a few of them? Well, um, so I'm not very familiar with the exact story of each of the temples, but I can tell you a bit about how the city came into being and how life could have been in Hampi when it was the capital of the Vijayanagara Empire. Would you like to hear that? Yes, I would. So with the Vijayanagara Empire, which is... uh, the empire that Hampi was the capital of, um, that empire came into being way back in 1336. So you can probably do the math and see how old that civilization was. It was um, established by two brothers who are uh, associated with the a community that is the pastoral cowherd community called the Yadavas. So these two brothers, Harihara and Bukka, or Hakka and Bukka, as they're popularly called, set up the Vijayanagara Empire. And at its peak, that empire was ruling over the entire South India, which is a huge area that includes Karnataka, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Kerala, Goa and parts of Maharashtra as well. This this kingdom, this empire, was very strong for over 200 years. And the kingdom is said to be so rich that in Hampi, uh, since you said you visited Hampi, outside the Virupaksha temple, you have the marketplaces. It is said that those marketplaces, people would sell gems like diamonds and emeralds and rubies the way we would see dry fruits in our markets. So the kingdom was so prosperous that gems and gold and diamonds and other precious items were sold like everyday items. Then the uh, trade that the, the empire had, there is evidence that shows that the Vijayanagara Empire used to export items to places as far as Venice. This was way back in 1336. And the entire uh, complex that you see in Hampi, the royal complex with the Virupaksha temple, the Vitala temple, the stone chariot, and all the other, uh, uh, the step wells, they are all uh, made, made possible because of a lot of administrative uh, um, genius that was there during the time, which also brought in a lot of uh, water management systems because if you've seen Hampi, it is a very dry um, place, isn't it? Even though it the Tungabhadra River is close by, it is a very dry uh, area. So they brought in irrigation where the, um, you know, the, Uh, fields could be irrigated throughout the year and even the royal complex where you have all the uh, queen's palace and you have all the other buildings 
there were uh, stone channels that were built in so that there was water all over and another uh, very interesting part about that uh, dynasty and that region was that if you remember your uh, jayshri party told you how she loves to sing carnatic music did you know that carnatic music actually uh, was developed to the form that we know today during the vijayanagara empire so wow, that is a so, yes it is and a lot of very famous uh, poets who uh, composed a lot of songs that are sung even to this day were given patronage by the vijayanagara kings wow yes that that's so fascinating i find it very interesting too do you know anything about world war 2 history i don't know a little about it i'm kind of confused why hitler wanted to invade poland okay so to understand that you need to um go back a little ways to the end of world war 1 so in world war 1 when the war ended uh there was this thing called the league of nations that was set up this was something like the united nations but in a very smaller uh format and the purpose of the league of nations and the treaty of versailles which was the peace treaty that was signed at the end of world war 1 was um a way for europe and the countries that were affected by the war to sort of rebuild themselves and come back to a normal state of life but what happened uh, during this treaty of versailles and by the league of nations was that germany was held responsible for all the damage that was caused during the war because germany was one of the main uh, aggressors even during world war 1 what happened as an outcome was that even after the war ended germany was uh, not uh, treated as an equal by the other members of the league of nations and they had a lot of uh, sanctions put against them uh, which is why the uh, entire country had a sort of a negative uh, approach they were feeling left out they were feeling uh, ostracized to a point where they wanted um, any sort of an opportunity where they could get back onto an evil footing so it was this sort of uh, environment of uh, uh, displeasure in which hitler uh, found an opportunity to come into power and he was able to influence the public because their sentiments were uh, something that he was able to connect with and get them on to his uh, way of thinking and it was all that sentiment that sort of paved way to uh, hitler coming into power and launching his campaign um, which started with invasion to poland the reason why hitler came into power was also because the environment in europe at the time was very anti germany so it was uh, easier for him to you know make a foothold in that community and uh, sort of get his uh, following in place I know who won the war at the end and how they won. Mhm. So basically the allies won and then in the axis 
There was Japan. Mm-hmm. There was Germany. Italy. Yes. And Hungary. That's right. Yeah. In the Allies, there were England. Mm-hmm. The US. Yes. I think China. Yes. Uh, uh, France. That's what I remember. Oh, yeah, France. There was France. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I remember. Mm-hmm. And, and then I know that uh, after the war, when the Allies had won, Hitler hid underground until he That's died. That's right. Yes. That's right. And I also know that Japan invaded Singapore. They because, did. Because they were getting too cramped up. There was lots of population in Japan. They mm-hmm. were getting too cramped up. So, and they needed resources. So yeah. they came to attack Southeast Asia. And That's started right. with Singapore and Malaya. Which in is fact, Malaya. Yes. In fact, Japan came right up to Burma. They... Uh, invaded up to Burma. In fact, the British and the Indian forces uh, towards the end of the war, around 42, 43, they actually had a battle in Burma where they fought the Japanese army. And that was uh, around the time where Germany and Japan started uh, losing the territories that they had gained during the war. And also, I know that when Japan started invading towards Singapore and Southeast Asia, Japan and China, I mean, not Japan, England and China stopped trading with Japan and then started to help help Singapore's armies fight. fight. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then US also joined and the the war ended when U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki in Japan. That's right. That's right. And then one, and then after that, I know this in mm-hmm. in Singapore, the the British were helping, as I said. Then their guns were facing towards the sea and they couldn't mm-hmm. turn them. I mean, they could turn some of them, but the others were only for sea. They couldn't be used yeah. on land. And, and people be, now believe that the, that the guns were facing the wrong way. They weren't. They were designed to face only sea targets. That's a very interesting piece of history. I didn't know yeah. that. And they plus they expected Japan, the Japanese to attack from the sea, not by land. Mm-hmm. Yes. That would make sense, wouldn't it? You would expect Japan to attack by sea. What can we learn from World War II to ensure that no more wars like that happen? (laughs) Okay, that's a very big question for a very small person. I think at a human level, 
if you uh, learn to respect each other that itself can go a very long way because if you see the seeds of world war 2 were in the fact that an entire nation was sort of sidelined by the rest of the continent and uh, the entire nation was blamed for the acts of their ancestors or a small group of uh, uh you know officers or generals who led the war efforts so if as a whole we learn to you know be accepting of each other and uh, be more open to diversity that itself can mitigate a lot of uh, risk of another world war I and mean, that's a very idealistic way of looking at the world but um what do you think what could be the uh, solution i think that if all the countries work together instead of fighting against each other we could probably fight against aliens <laughs> yes i think world war 3 would be against the aliens yeah instead of world meaning earth it will probably mm-hmm. be universe yes When I was talking to you on the phone you mm-hmm. told me about the tem- a temple which was attacked by a king can you tell me more about that story sure so my maternal grandfather his hometown is this village called Anandapuram which is in Karnataka in the Shimoga district now there is a temple there that is uh dedicated to the lord ranganatha which is an avatar of vishnu and this form of the idol is called the bete ranganatha now bete in kannada is hunter hunting so this is a hunter form of the idol which is something that is not very common uh what the avatar of vishnu that is associated with the bow and arrow is lord ram you normally see rama with a bow and arrow now during the uh, reign of tipu sultan who was one of the uh, rulers of the mysore kingdom tipu sultan's capital was in shrirangapatna near mysore now shrirangapatna has a very old ranganatha temple and he was an ardent follower of lord ranganatha even though he was a muslim so there was a lot of uh, uh, secularism uh, in certain elements like even though he was not open to the other gods of hinduism he was very devout to lord ranganatha so tipu sultan's army any time they invaded uh, any part of the uh, region if the temple was a ranganatha temple they would protect it but if it was a temple that belonged to any other um, idol be it lord rama lord shiva anything else they would destroy it and take all the wealth now this is a story um, that my grandmother used to tell me as a child so i am not 100% sure of its validity but the story is that apparently when tipu's forces came towards anandapuram the locals to protect the temple which was supposed to be a rama temple they told the forces that this temple was a bete ranganatha temple 
So they changed the name of the idol and said it is a Ranganatha temple to protect it. And it is said that because of that, Tipu's forces did not destroy the temple and they moved ahead away from the town. Which is why ever since that temple has been called the Bete Ranganatha temple. Now, this is a form of oral history where I cannot very confidently say how accurate it is. But it was this story that sparked an interest in me in history because it was a very exciting story. You know, I could stand there in that temple and imagine Tipu's forces, you know, coming in and asking the priest, what temple is this? And walking away after they come to know that it is a Ranganatha temple and all of that. So, yes, that was the story that uh, got me interested in history in the first place. That's very interesting. It's quite a fun story. But how do historians verify that a story is true or false? There are a few different ways in which historians can verify information. Uh, You have uh, the different literature from that era. It could be the, uh, you know, the travel um, uh, documents that these various travelers uh, write during that age. Like if you look at the Vijayanagara Empire, you have a lot of uh, books written by Chinese travelers, by uh, Middle Eastern travelers, by Northern travelers. So you have those documents. You have the stories written by the Uh, rulers themselves and the uh, poets and the writers that they patronized. You have the uh, different inscriptions that you find in the monuments from that era. You have archaeological evidence where when you um, excavate an area, the artifacts that you find, be it coins, be it uh, pieces of pottery, um, the grains, all of that give clues to what the story could be. So when you take all these different pieces, along with stories like the one that I told you, which may have a small amount of truth in them, it becomes easier for historians to make an educated guess on what that life might have been. And the more evidence they get through excavations, through literature, through inscriptions and through local legends, they are able to make more sound judgments on how life was back in the day. Well, now that I know that, I'm almost complete. I can now be a historian. Yay. You can. (laughs) And then I will, and then I'll excavate the full world, seeing (laughs) seeing what I can find. Do you mind if I tag along? Oh, no, I don't. (laughs) Thank you. Coming back to your history, Mm -hmm. what did you want to be as a child? As a child, I actually wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a microbiologist because my grandfather was a microbiologist. But then at around uh, when I entered high school, I realized that I did not want to study medicine because it wasn't uh, 
my style of studying i felt was not suited for the amount of work medicine requires and i started looking at other options then i decided that i wanted to become a travel journalist which is why i studied tourism and journalism in my undergraduate yeah so that's what i wanted to be when i was growing up first a doctor and then a travel journalist did you ever think about being a historian i did in fact after i did my um studies in library and information science i was actually looking for um universities where i could go and study um how manuscripts which are your very very old documents how these manuscripts are preserved and how people uh can gain insights through manuscripts so i was looking at becoming a historian of literature but um my efforts didn't pan out and i decided to um change my line of um, study and went back into tourism and marketing i think i'll follow that same path because i i don't know what i want to be when i grow up so if you if uh, as long as your uh, family is supporting you in every aspect uh, of your uh, curiosity i'm sure you're going to learn a lot of stuff they are on team vedan so am i what are your hobbies my hobbies are baking reading and traveling i like baking and i like reading and i also like traveling yes i know hmm? but i don't know you like baking what do you like to bake cakes wow i'm going to come and taste some of your goodies the next time i'm in singapore thank you so much for coming on my show thank you edant it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today yeah this was so fun i learned a lot about indian history i'm glad i could help mm-hmm. you you did thank you dear listeners follow my facebook page curious vedan to get updates on my upcoming episodes to listen at leisure on your phone and get notified about future episodes subscribe by searching for curious vedan wherever you get your podcasts such as apple podcast spotify stitcher google podcast and many more you can also listen to my show on curiousvedan.com thank you for listening to curious vedan and don't forget to rate and leave comments